Well, I don't know what your church experience has been like, but I imagine that many of you grew up or spent time in churches that preach the gospel every Sunday, which on the surface sounds really good, right? But if the main point of every sermon every week is simply that people need to get saved, that's not always the most helpful thing. First of all, it's very hard to grow and mature as a believer in a church whose primary goal is presenting the gospel to unbelievers every time the doors are opened. Furthermore, I think it's a superficial application of the purpose of the church, not to mention a distortion of the pattern of the church that is clearly modeled for us in the New Testament. From its inception, the church was established to evangelize the lost and to equip or edify the saints. Let me say that again because I don't want to assume that that's commonplace to all of you. But from its inception, the church was established to evangelize the lost and to edify and equip the saints. But if you look at the birth and growth of the church in the book of Acts, which is a very fascinating study you'll notice something very clearly that the believers, the early believers, would gather together to be edified and equipped, and then they would scatter to evangelize unbelievers. And that's why when we gather on Sundays and Wednesdays, our main focus is on building up believers inside the church so that you can grow and mature in your walk with Christ and be better equipped to evangelize the lost outside the church. Now granted, every time someone shows up here at Lakeside Bible Church, they should be able to hear and see the gospel and be given an opportunity to turn from their sin and place their trust in Jesus Christ since we should never, ever assume that everyone who attends attends church is a true believer. And I think in a church like ours that focuses so much on edifying and equipping believers, I think it's imperative from time to time that we reiterate or reemphasize the gospel message. And I think that serves a couple of purposes. Number one, it provides a clear presentation of the gospel for those who are not saved with the hope that perhaps God may grant you genuine repentance and faith. Our goal is here at Lakeside, is that no one who attends here will end up in hell. Why? Because you've heard, or I should say it this way, because you've never heard the gospel. Or because you sat there every Sunday thinking you were saved when you really weren't. We want to make it hard to go to hell from this church. But the other purpose, I think, of reemphasizing or reiterating the gospel from time to time is it provides a clear presentation of the gospel for those who are saved with the hope that you will faithfully share that message with others. And another goal we have here at Lakeside is that we want everyone who attends here to have a simple gospel outline memorized that you can use anytime God gives you an opportunity to witness to someone. So we want to make it easy for people here at this church to share the gospel. 
because the gospel is truly glorious, and it is a glorious privilege to share it. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, if you haven't figured it out, we're not in 1 Peter today. 1 Peter chapter 1, Paul is writing to Timothy and he's talking about the false teachers there and how they got off track when it came to the law and the gospel. And he, he describes the gospel in interesting terms here. And just a simple little verse here. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. He says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I like how the ESV says it, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The NIV, if you have a copy of that in front of you, you can see what it says there. That conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. In other words, in Paul's mind, the gospel was about the glory of God. The gospel concerned the glory of God. It was all about God's glory. And I think that's why when he was done giving the, 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 the clearest, most powerful presentation of the gospel anywhere in writing, Romans chapters 1 through 11, he concluded with these words, Romans eleven thirty six: for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever, amen. So everything I just got done explaining to you, he said, about the gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone was all ultimately for God's glory alone. And so what I want to do this morning is, is, is to explain the gospel to you from the perspective of God's glory and, and get you to look at at the gospel in a way perhaps that you've never looked at before, you don't often look at. But to begin, turn to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. And here we find a fascinating little story about Herod, who had already killed James and was had Peter arrested and probably had the same intent, wanted to knock off the apostles as one at a time to somehow shut down this, 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 this new movement that was exploding by this time in Acts chapter 12. But notice what it says about, how, about Herod's demise or Herod's death. This is Acts chapter 12, verse 20. Now Herod was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and with one accord they came to him, and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. Historians say that that royal apparel that he was wearing on that day was a silver-coated robe. And so he, when he stood up, he, 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 he shined. The sun reflected off the silver, and he, and he glowed. And not only was he glowing, 
but he was gloating. Notice verse 22. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. That's kind of a good place just to close in prayer, right? Lord bless you. Have a great week. What, what in the world is going on there? Well, I think Isaiah provides a commentary of that. Isaiah 48, verse 11. You can turn back there as well. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11. And I think this is a commentary on what happened to Herod in Acts chapter 12. Isaiah 48, verse 11, God says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act, for how can my name be profaned, and here it is, and my glory I will not give to another. I think this is one of the most radical verses in the entire Bible. Because it teaches us that God is jealous for his glory. He doesn't want anyone else to get any glory but him. He wants all the glory for himself. In fact, God's number one goal is to glorify himself. Everything he does in this world is to magnify and exalt himself. I know some of you are having a hard time with just how that all sounds. It even sounds bad coming out of my mouth. I'm admitting that. Why is that? Well, number one is we don't like people like that. (laughs) No one likes a show off. And so... To be clear, I'm not implying that God is a show-off. He's not enamored with himself or he's he's not on some ego trip. He's not arrogant. He's not self-centered. He's God. He has none of those sins that we struggle with. So we don't like people like that. Secondly, I think we know the Bible tells us not to be like that. But we need to understand and keep in mind that the rules of humility that apply to us don't apply to God. And what I mean by that may be better said this way, God does not struggle with pride like you do and like I do. Pride is not a part of his being. He's perfect. He's holy without sin. And so while it's wrong for us to try to glorify ourselves... It's not wrong for God to glorify himself. It's perfectly okay. In fact, it might help to define God's glory. What do do you mean when we talk about God's glory? Well, the glory of God is really the sum of who he is. It's It's a composite of all of his attributes, his love, his mercy, his grace, his goodness, his faithfulness, his justice, his wrath, his wisdom, his power. It's just all of God rolled into one, and that's what we mean by his glory. 
And the glory of God is intrinsic. In other words, it's part of who he is. As light is to the sun, as blue is to the sky, as wet is to water, so glory is to God. You don't make the sun light, it is light. You don't make the water wet, it is wet. You don't make the sky blue, it is blue. And and you don't make God glorious, he is glorious. Period. And in contrast, our glory or any glory that we might have as human beings is granted to us. If you take away a a king's robe, you take off his crown, you, you place him next to a beggar on the street and you can't tell the difference between the two. Why? Because that king has no intrinsic glory. The only glory that king has is is when you give him a crown and a robe and you tell him, hey, you get to sit on that throne. We elect you, we appoint you to be over us. And yet the glory of God is his very essence. You can't take away God's glory. He is the God of glory. Psalm 29 refers to him as that. And so because God is the only one who has intrinsic glory, he's the only one who deserves then to be glorified and the only one who can demand to be glorified. He has every right to to show off his glory at any time and in any way and he has every right to jealously guard his glory from those who try to steal it from him. So you could say it this way, God has a passion for his own glory. His ultimate priority is to glorify himself. And he expects everyone else that he created to have that same passion for his glory and to make it their ultimate priority to glorify him. In fact, if you've studied the the reformers like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Knox and Wesley and Jonathan Edwards... They all understood that the overarching theme of the Bible was the glory of God. And they saw everything through that lens of the glory of God. And so they sought to make that the ultimate priority of the church that they were a part of in that day and, 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 and the, the ultimate priority of their personal lives. And that's why when they set out to... Um, simply define their theology, if you will, or what does the Bible teach about everything? Let's pull it all together and make it really simple and clear and and systematized and and even a way that we can maybe train our children in sound doctrine. They came up with things like the Westminster Catechism, and the very first question is, do do you even know the question, let alone the answer? What's the first question? What is the chief end of man? And what is the answer? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So the question is, how do we glorify God and enjoy Him forever? That's that's the question of life right there. How do we glorify God and enjoy Him forever? If that is the, 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 the chief end of man, if that's why we're here, if that's why we exist, if that is our purpose for being on this planet, then how do you do that? Well, obviously that's a huge topic. So let me try just to give a simple 
summary or a simple overview here. And so what I want to do is I, I just want to, this morning, just summarize everything the Bible says about the glory of God into six simple statements, six critical truths that we need to understand so that we give God the glory that is due him. How, how are we to glorify God and enjoy him forever? Here we go. Number one, you need to understand this first critical truth. There is a God who deserves glory. There is a God who deserves glory. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. There's no, there's no preface to the Bible. There's no introduction to the Bible. Hey, let me let you know, we're going to be talking about this, this God and, 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 and his creation and, and uh, you know, what man's going to do and how he's going to rescue them. And, no, it, it just says, hey, in the beginning, God. It just comes right out of the gate, in the beginning, God. In other words, God is a presuppositional apologetic, apologist. And those of you that study apologetics, you know what I'm talking about. He doesn't waste time giving any kind of rational uh, or um, intellectual arguments for his existence. He just says, hey, I exist. Get over it. Deal with it. You know it. I know it. We all know it. Let's not argue about it. So he says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. And a beautiful psalm there, Psalm 19, talking about general revelation and how uh, the sun comes forth every day and marches across the sky. And it's all, all these things that God has created are pointing us to the fact that there's a God. Isaiah 6.3, the whole earth is filled with his glory. Romans chapter 1 verse 20, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen through what has been made so that men are without excuse. It's clear. Just look around you. There's a God. No one can get to heaven and say, well, I, I, how was I supposed to know? It's as clear as the nose on your face, literally. The anatomy of the human body. Only the, the power of God could have, could, have, could have created that. Revelation 4.11, this is the end of the story Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed and were created. Calvin summarized, John Calvin summarized all of these verses in the scriptures by simply saying this. He said the universe is a theater for God's glory. The universe is a theater for God's glory. Why do you go to the theater to watch a play, to watch a movie, right? It's, 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 it's a show, and, and you're there to watch, and, uh, and if it's good, right, if it's a good play, if it's a good uh, movie, it's a, if it's a good performance, uh, your bre- your, 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 it takes your breath away. And I think that was the point of the Genesis account. 
you open your Bible and you say, you, first thing you read is, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and it just goes through and talks about all that he created out of nothing, which you and I could never do. We need something. We're, we're creative. We're created in the image of God. We are creative individuals, creative creatures, but we always need some material to start with. He had no material to start with. Ex nihilo, we talk about out of nothing God created. And so it's really just to, to, to stun us, to take our breath away right out of the gate and for us to realize, okay, there's a God and, 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 he, uh, and, and uh, he's glorious. And I have to figure out how to relate to this God. We just finished reading in Iron Man, Paul Tripp's book called Do You Believe? Really helpful book about closing the gap between what you say you believe and how you live your life. And he does a really good job just unpacking 12 historic doctrines one of which was creation, which I honestly, when I saw the title of that particular chapter, that really? He, of, of the 12 biggies, right? He, he's picking creation to write two chapters on in a book about doctrine? Well, I had to um, <laughs> humble myself after I read the chapters because I thought, wow, now I get it. This is significant. This is foundational. Let me just read for you something he said in that chapter on the doctrine of creation and how it applies to everyday life. He said this, quote, every glorious created thing is designed by God to be a finger that points to his glory. The stunning, shocking, gripping account of creation, which is the first thing you encounter when you open your Bible, is there for a reason. Your Bible was written in such a way that you encounter God in all the hugeness of his glory, right away. This original, he calls it this, he, the original sight and sound, multi-sensory, technicolor glory display of creation is meant to drive you to what you were created for. The words are written to make God loom so large that you drop to your knees in awe and worship. And he said this, the glory of his majesty completely fills the stage that we may have thought was ours. So this universe is not a stage for us. It's a stage for God. So, number one, there is a God who deserves glory. Number two, God created all of us to live for his glory. God created all of us to live for his glory. And it, it, scripture could not be clearer. Isaiah 43, 7, the prophet says, God created everyone for his glory. Genesis 1, back to the creation account. God created man in his own image. We were designed to reflect God's glory in this world. However, instead of providing an accurate reflection of God's glory to one another, we distort the image of God because of our sin. I'm sure most of you have gone into a fun house at some point at a carnival or a fair and they have those mirrors, right, that you kind of all walk in front, your family steps in front of the mirrors and 
one mirror makes you look tall and skinny, the other one looks, makes you look squatty and fat, and just, it's, it's, just, it's a distorted image. And so really that's what's happened. We, you know, we don't accurately reflect God's glory. We, we, we are distorted images because of sin. But even the New Testament makes it clear. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul said, whatever you do to all to the what? To the glory of God. Whatever you do. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you are to be doing that for the glory of God. In other words, we are here on this earth to bring glory to God. That's why the question you should ask yourself before you do anything is, will this glorify God? I mean, that's the question of life right there. Will this glorify God? Maybe they should put, you know, that on a bracelet instead of WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? That's a good question, by the way, too. But, but will it glorify God? When our kids were little, we would sit around the breakfast table and read through the, the children's catechism. And uh, we had this uh, very simplified version of it when they were especially young, and we would just kind of te- you know, read a question and, and, and teach them the answers. And, and I'll never forget, I mean, the first five questions are so foundational. I mean, if that's all you ever uh, remembered or walked away from as a child with these first five questions in your mind and your heart, number one, who made you answer God? Second question, what else did God make? God made all things. Third question, why did God make you all things? For His glory. Number four, how can you glorify God? By loving Him and obeying Him. And then question five is, why should you glorify God? Because He made you and takes care of you. I still remember, like it was yesterday, teaching our kids just to kind of in rhyme, because he made me and takes care of me. Again, those are just foundational truths. So the question, what does it mean to glorify God? That's a, an important question. I, and again, just a simple answer. It's, it's all that we are responding in loving obedience to all that God is. All that we are responding in loving obedience to all that he is. In other words, we recognize who God is, what do we do? We bow before Him and we surrender our lives to Him and realize that, 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 that our life is not our own. He made us. He owns us. And so therefore we live for His glory. So we were created, all of us, to live for His glory. Third critical truth, all of us fail to glorify God as we should. All of us fail to glorify God as we should. In other words, we don't respond in loving obedience to all that God is. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. You're like, well, what does it mean to fall short of God's glory? Well, Romans chapter 1, I think, answers that question. It says, um, Romans 1.21, for even though they knew God... Because of the creation, right? God made it clear so that men are without excuse. 
And yet even though they knew God and were without excuse, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for other things. So we fail to glorify God when we dishonor him by refusing to admit that he is our creator. And we refuse to submit to his authority over us as our owner. Or we fail to express our gratitude to him as our sustainer or show reverence to him as our coming judge. And so really the essence of sin is not not all the bad things that we do, but it's not doing the one right thing. And that's giving God the rightful place he deserves in our lives. The unholy trinity is me, myself, and I. Right? It's, it's about us. And we tend towards worshiping ourselves rather than worshiping God. And that's the reason why we do the bad things we do. Dishonoring God, not giving Him the glory that He deserves, is what leads to disobeying God and dishonoring God and not glorifying God. Again, let me read a few sentences from Tripp's book, Do You Believe? He said, life is a glory war. I mean, that's worth the price of the book right there, right? Life is a glory war. This inescapable war is fought in our hearts every day. All of us are tempted somehow, some way to worship and serve something in the physical creation rather than the one who created it. And you, and you fill in the blank there. That could be your marriage. You're looking for satisfaction from your spouse. It could be um, your job. It could be sex. It could be food. Uh, it could be material things. Um, it could be your hobbies. You're looking for, for some kind of uh, satisfaction and pleasure from something or someone other than God. And he says this, nothing in the created world will ever satisfy the deep, deepest hunger in our hearts. In other words, there's this hunger, right, that we're just always trying to fill and satisfy and satiate. And again, I believe God wired us that way with that hunger, that innate hunger to drive us to him and to find our satisfaction in him. Trip goes on, he says, you and I were created by God and for God. In love, he placed us in a beautiful world so that everywhere we look, we would see his glory and be reminded that life can only ever be found in him. But in the idolatry of sin, we look for life elsewhere, hoping that some created thing will do for us what only God can do. So, all of us fail to glorify God as we should. Number four, all of us deserve to be punished by God for failing to glorify Him. All of us deserve to be punished by God for failing to glorify Him. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And not just you get old and die, death, but that word death there is, is the word for separation. 
that we will be set, the, the, the punishment for our sin, what we deserve because of our, our rebellion against God and not honoring Him and glorifying Him is to be separated from Him for all eternity. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul was describing to the church in Thessalonica what it would be like when Jesus returned. He said this, that he would deal out punishment to those that who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his presence. Now, this is a, a little tricky to, to think through. And we, we had some simulating conversations amongst the Ironmen when we got to this section about, about hell and how some, you know, will say that people will be, you know, that God is not in hell. Well, hell is a representation of God's wrath and God's justice. And so in some way, those who are in hell will experience the presence of God, the presence of his wrath, the presence of his, of his holiness, the, the presence of his justice. But they will experience none of his mercy and none of his grace and none of his goodness and none of his faithfulness, which all of us take for granted. There's a term called common grace. That means you don't have to be a Christian to experience God's grace and goodness and mercy in your life. The fact that your unbelieving neighbor woke up today and is out playing golf or mowing his yard, that's the grace of God. The fact he's got food to eat, have lunch today, right? Yeah, that's the grace of God. So we have all this, you know, the fact that it, it, you know, it rains, you know, not just on your yard, but also on his yard, Right? It's not like your grass is greener because it only rains there and it's like a drought over here. Well, no, because God is gracious and he, he rains, he lets, the, he lets the, 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 it rain on the just and the unjust. So that's really what you'll be separated from in hell is, is, is all the attributes of God that we just take for granted now. And so hell is where people go for all eternity who refuse to glorify God here on earth. And it's totally fair, it's totally just for God to shut us out of his glory forever because essentially he's, only, he's just giving us what we want. You didn't care about my glory during my life or during your life? Shouldn't matter if you're separated from my glory for all eternity. Matthew 25, 41 Jesus, in one of his parables, said, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. By the way, Satan was the original Herod, the one who wanted to parade his glory in heaven. And you can read about this in the Old Testament. Lucifer um, the, the, the chief angel, if you will, the most beautiful angel that God created, didn't like the fact that God was getting all the glory, God was getting all the attention, God was getting all the accolades, God was getting all the praise and all the worship. He wanted some of that for himself. 
And he said, I will be like God. By the way, isn't that interesting? That's the temptation he offered to Eve. That if you eat this fruit, you will become what? Like God. So so Satan refused to worship and glorify God. He said, I'm going to be like God. And God says, I don't share my glory with anyone. And he cast him out of heaven. Along with all those who followed him in his rebellion against, against him. The, the, the demons, the devil and his angels, those, those are what we know as the demons. So, all of us deserve to be punished by God for failing to glorify him. Number five, Jesus Christ, and this is the good news, Jesus Christ glorified God by living and dying in our place. Jesus Christ glorified God by living and dying in our place. And this is where we need to understand something about God. God is bound by his holy character to preserve the worth of his glory. It's like, oh, they didn't, they didn't glorify God. They didn't do so well. Eh, that's not that big of a deal. No, he, he is bound to preserve the worth of his glory. And he does that by pouring out his wrath on those who don't glorify him. And sending people to hell is one way to punish sin. The other way is sending his own son to live on the earth and pour out his wrath on him to pay the penalty for man's sin. He could either separate you from his glory or he could separate his son from his glory. And I think that was the essence when Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you, what, forsaken me? John Piper said it well, trying to pull all this together and try to make sense of it. He said this, quote, the wisdom of God ordained a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. The wisdom of God ordained a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. And by the way, his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. John 1.14, and the word became flesh, talking about Christ, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. God's glory. We, We saw God's glory in the person of Jesus Christ. John 7.18 He who speaks for himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. Talking about himself there, Christ. John 8, 50, I do not seek my glory. In other words, Jesus perfectly lived for the glory of God. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. He literally did. None of us can say we've always done everything for the glory of God. Jesus can say that. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. In other words, Jesus Christ perfectly reflected the glory of God. No funhouse distorted image going on there. If you, know, if you want to know what God looks like, 
Look at Jesus. As Chris said earlier, in the Gospels. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul said in verse 4, Christ is the image of God, the glory of God shown in the face of Christ. In other words, when you looked in the face of Jesus, you were looking into the face of God. In a body, by the way. And I love this, John 13, 31. God is glorified in Christ. So what it says, John 13, 31. God is glorified in Christ, period. That, that's, that's all you need to know. And that's why we need to hitch our wagon with Jesus, right? Why we need to hitch our wagon with Christ. Because he's the only one who ever ultimately, truly, perfectly glorified God. And his whole purpose in life was to glorify God in everything, which he did perfectly in life and in death. And so he lived the life that none of us could live, and he died the death that all of us should die. And it glorified God to punish Jesus in our place so that he could provide for us eternal life in heaven rather than punish us with eternal suffering in hell. There's one more critical truth. Number six, God is glorified when we turn from our sin and trust in Jesus Christ. God is glorified when we turn from our sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, Mark 1.15, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Acts 20, 21, Paul said that he solemnly testified to both Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, when our kids were little and one of the other questions that we ask them from that little children's catechism is, what do you have to do to go to heaven? And I don't remember the original answer, but we, again, always trying to make it easier to remember and make it alliterated in rhyme, we simply taught them to say, turn from sin and trust in Jesus. What do you have to do to go to heaven? Turn from sin and trust in Jesus. So what does it mean to turn from sin? That's the word repent, right? It means that you admit that you've sinned against God by living for yourself, for your own glory, and be willing to stop doing that and live for His glory. This is an interesting verse. In Revelation 16, this is during the the tribulation when all chaos breaks loose on the earth and people are getting saved. People are getting saved through the tribulation. How does that happen? Well, you've got, you've got the 144,000 witnesses or evangelists, but you've also got angels flying around apparently in the sky proclaiming the gospel. I mean, wouldn't that be nice if we had that going on right now, right? You got angels. Hey, you, Yeah, I'm talking to you. You need to repent. You need to put your faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, that would get some people's attention, right? Well, apparently it's going to be so radical during the tribulation 
that that's just going to be normal. <laughs> like, angels flying around, he say, hey, you, buddy, you need to repent. Revelation 16, verse 8, and the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire, and men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent, now listen to this, so as to give him glory. Interesting. They did not repent. Even though they were suffering intense uh, tribulation, they still refused to turn away from their sin, to give up their sin. And it says, and because they didn't repent, um, they didn't give them glory. Like in other words, give them the glory, you've got to repent. Achan, if you remember the story back in Joshua chapter 7, he stole some of that stuff that he wasn't, was under the ban. He hid it under his tent in the ground. And uh, when, when God finally exposed him, Joshua said this to him in Joshua 7, 19, he said to Achan, give glory to the Lord and tell me now what you have done. So in other words, confession, right? When you confess you're a sinner and what you've done, that glorifies God. So you need to repent, but you also need to believe. You say, what does that mean? Well, it means you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you trust in his death on the cross as the only way that you can escape the wrath of God. John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Again, this is interesting how John uses the word believe and obey interchangeably there. So there's a, a volitional aspect of belief. It's not just intellectual, believing some facts about Jesus in your head. No, it leads to a, a change of life. It leads to a life of obedience. John 15, 8, my father is glorified by this, Jesus said, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. It was said of Abraham by Paul, Romans 4.20, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. You see this theme of the glory of God everywhere throughout Scripture? And how it just, it's the gospel, the glory of God is just weaved throughout the gospel? You say, okay, what about those who refuse to obey God's command to repent and believe in His Son, Jesus Christ? Well, you know what? God will still be glorified no matter what. Because no one can thwart God's glory. And Paul, you may remember in Romans chapter 9, used Pharaoh as an example. This is Romans 9, 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to de demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth so, that he, th so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And you will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? In other words, you can't blame me if God is sovereign over salvation. On the contrary, who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? 
And he did so to make known, ready, the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. So even though Pharaoh refused to give God the glory for all that he was doing, talk about a technicolor show there with those ten plagues, right? He refused to give God glory, to acknowledge that that was God and that he was greater than him and to repent. And yet God was glorified in Pharaoh's destruction. Why? Because God's justice and wrath are just as much a part of his glory as his love and his mercy. So if you're sitting here today living for yourself, living for your own glory, the fact that God judges those who refuse to glorify him should be a powerful incentive for you to turn from your sin and to receive the free gift of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. I think these are a summary of the glory of God. They're also a summary of the gospel, which is all about the glory of God. And I think when we understand and apply these six truths to our lives, then we will live the way God intended us to live. Not seeking our own glory, but striving to live for his glory. After all, that's why he created us. That is why we exist. That is why you are you. To glorify God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity this morning just to be reminded of your glorious glory that no one could put into words no matter how hard they tried. It's beyond us, but we're so thankful for what we see in your word, the, the little bit of revelation you have provided us. It's clear that you are a glorious God and you, in your wisdom, came up with this glorious gospel so that we who have messed up royally by not giving you glory and honor can experience glorious redemption glorious forgiveness, and a glorious eternity where we get to bask in your glory forever and ever. I pray that this would also incentivize us to, to go out and to help others understand um, what life is all about, that it's not about living for ourselves, but it's living for you, our creator, our sustainer, our owner, and our coming judge, but the one who came in the form of Jesus Christ to take the punishment for our sin on the cross. Lord, I pray we'd never get over the glorious nature of the gospel, and may it be our greatest joy uh, to share it with others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.